It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Jason. Hey, Sam. Jason, if you had to pick a singular event that sort of defined politics in the 21st century... It would would have to be the economic crisis. Wait a minute. Wait. We already did that episode, so we can't hype it. Uh, Fair enough. All right. Pick another one. I don't know. How about the time Obama wore that tan suit? That was transformative in its own special way. That was like a banner headline in the Times. All right. Enough about you. If I were choosing, I would go with the 2003 Iraq invasion. Well, it's a pretty good choice. Yeah. It's not just the fact that the invasion of Iraq has precipitated in one way or another all the most horrifying developments that we've seen now in the Middle East over the last few years. But think about this. Up until Obama withdrew and ended U.S. involvement, sort of, American politics revolved around Iraq. I mean, the vote in Congress over whether to authorize that war, every Democratic presidential candidate since has made that a defining issue. And you just know on sleepless nights, Hillary Clinton is up thinking about what would have been had she just not voted for the authorization. I don't even think she goes to sleep. It haunts her that much. It haunts her. So... If you were to ask people today, how would you vote if the resolution were in front of you? You wouldn't get a lot of takers, right? Even on the Republican side, the war has become this weird taboo. Donald Trump famously broke with his party during the primary when he went after Jeb Bush over it. But that was decidedly not the case back in late 2002. That time, Congress was faced with a decision whether or not to authorize President George W. Bush's use of force against Saddam Hussein. Now, let's set the scene. 9-11 was just over a year in the past. U.S. troops were deployed in Afghanistan. The war on terror, quote-unquote, was the defining theme of American politics. Everyone wanted to show that they were serious about this issue. And they're also terrified of being called soft on terror. Seemingly everyone, newspapers, TV pundits, politicians, especially the White House, they were pounding this relentless message. Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons. He's going to use them soon. We need to stop him, or apocalyptically bad things are going to happen. But even in that atmosphere, 133 representatives in the House managed to vote against authorizing war, as did 23 senators. Now, today on the show, we're going to talk to two of those senators, Dick Durbin of Illinois and Kent Conrad of North Dakota. These two guys both felt deeply that something had gone terribly wrong in the run-up to that vote, and they felt equally that they had to oppose it. It's easy to gloat now about that vote, but back then... These guys, and and many of their anti-war colleagues, they felt like they were quite possibly ending their careers. Durbin and Conrad and the 21 other senators who opposed the Iraq resolution, they failed to stop the war, obviously. And their failure revealed that when the chips are down, when the drums of war are pounding, it can be extremely difficult, perhaps impossible, to stand in the way of a foreign invasion. They also warned that the circumstances that led us into Iraq, they could very well happen again. Welcome to Candidate Confessional. Confessional. 
To begin our conversation, former Senator Kent Conrad started out by taking us back to that atmosphere of fear that existed in the early 2000s. Remember, you've got to take yourself back to that time. We had been attacked on 9-11. We had been attacked uh, in the homeland. We were very worried about follow-on attacks. Pretty soon after 9-11, it became increasingly clear that they had somehow confused the events of 9-11 with Iraq. And you could hear in their rhetoric a continuing connection of Iraq with 9-11. Yeah. And, of course, we knew that Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9-11. So it was clear that the Bush administration was already trying to draw some sort of link between 9-11 and Iraq, as unrelated as they seemed. In the atmosphere of hyper-patriotism that followed the World Trade Center attacks, the language went largely unchallenged. And Senator Dick Durbin remembers the moment when it really became clear to him that the administration was pushing for war. Uh, my first suspicion uh, might have been President Bush's State of the Union address after the 9-11 tragedy. Iran aggressively pursues these weapons and exports terror. Uh, the president was explicit in naming countries uh, that were he considered to be threats to the United States. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America. In uh, his reference to the axis of evil. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. Do you recall uh, how you reacted to hearing Iran, North Korea, and Iraq listed like that? Well, it came as a surprise. I mean, we always thought in terms of the Soviet Union, then Russia, and uh, others that might, North Korea, that might be a threat to the United States. But the president was expanding the category. Uh, and by adding in these other countries, it gave some of us pause that, uh, you know, are all of these countries literally threats to the United States? Sometimes it helps to simplify things. Sometimes it misleads us and clouds our thinking. And I thought this was one of those cases where it was an overstatement and highly likely to mislead people. There had not been any real significant linkage between Iraq and what happened on 9-11. But then fast forward uh, and we started hearing primarily from Vice President Cheney. Simply stated. There is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. There is no doubt that he is amassing them to use against our friends, against our allies, and against us. At that time, I was a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and we had been going through a lot of material uh, about what we had found and what we were finding. Uh, and it was then that I started to realize this was getting serious and it was moving toward the possibility of invasion. Many of us are convinced that Saddam Hussein will acquire nuclear weapons fairly soon. And it was in the early part of September. My staffer leans over. He'd been around for a while. And he said, they're missing something here. We're not supposed to take any action unless there's a national intelligence estimate. I turned around and said, what is that? And he said, <laughs> it means that every intelligence agency, and there are a lot of them, need to come together and do a common report so they compare what they found. And you can then look at this national intelligence estimate before you have to make a decision to vote. And he said, nobody's asked for one here. And it appears that we are marching toward a vote for war. This is in September. This is one month before the authorization. One month before the vote. Yeah. 
So I wrote a letter and made a request for the National Intelligence Estimate, joined quickly by Senator Graham and others, who realized this was a terrible omission. Well, they slapped one together and all but said so. We had to do this in record time, record time, which later turned out to be um, full of errors and omissions, uh, and uh, it started moving forward toward the vote. Were you suspicious in the sort of sitting in the intelligence committee? Were you suspicious before this that there was this sort of drumbeat before September, or were you, or was that the point when your That's, staff came? The momentum out? was picking up. Yeah, it's building and building and building, and it's clearly building to give the president the authority to go to war and to force Congress into a vote on the question. But in terms of slam dunk evidence and information, we didn't have it. We didn't. We never had it. Yeah, and it turned out there was a reason we didn't have it. It didn't <laughs> exist. One of the things we sometimes forget today is that a lot of the early case for war was built on claims made by Iraqi defectors, people who claimed firsthand knowledge of nuclear or chemical weapons programs within Iraq. A former top Iraqi nuclear scientist tells Congress Iraq could build three nuclear bombs by 2005. Years later, it would become clear how much of this material had been fabricated by Iraqis desperate to see Saddam deposed. But even at the time, some were skeptical. We were listening to some of these uh, outlandish claims by former uh, uh, Iraqi nationals who wanted to return to power in that country and falling like, uh, you know, in front of them saying these, these must be credible. And in fact, they weren't. And by the way, the news media was totally complicit. Um, almost every aspect of the news media was beating the drums for war. The, the administration knows Hussein is about revenge. He has anthrax. He loves biological weapons. He has terrorist training camps. If you watched the evening news on almost any of the networks, if you read the print media, including the New York Times. We, we read in the New York Times today, Saddam Hussein is closer to acquiring nuclear weapons. There was this constant, incessant emphasis on war with Iraq. We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. It was almost blood fever in the country. We know they have weapons of mass destruction. We know they have active programs. There, there isn't any debate about it. This struck me as very dangerous, reckless, and completely detached from any reality as I understood it. But it didn't strike many of your colleagues that way. Who among us? can say with any certainty to anybody that the weapons might not be used against our troops or against allies in the region. So on Capitol Hill, what were the conversations like? Uh, the conversations were, to me, bizarre. <laughs> uh, because some completely bought the connection between 9-11 and Iraq based on no facts. Others were simply intimidated because the fervor in the country for war was so intense that people didn't want to stand up to it. They thought it would be a career ender. Yeah. Left unchecked, Saddam Hussein will continue to increase his capacity to wage biological and chemical warfare and will keep trying to develop nuclear weapons. I myself thought I might be ending my career by voting against a war authorization with Iraq. Would we look like we were serious about responding to 9-11? Would we look like we're serious about weapons of mass destruction threatening Israel or our allies in the Middle East or even the United States? It was profoundly wrong. I knew it would be 
extremely serious for the country. I thought it would be a major, major mistake. And most of all, that it had nothing to do with taking on the perpetrators of 9-11. One of the most profound speeches for me at the time that this was all playing out was a late colleague of yours, uh, Robert Byrd. To contemplate war is to think about the most horrible of human experiences. Who took to the floor of the Senate and more or less said, this chamber is silent. The rafters should ring. The press galleries should be filled. Senators should be at their seats listening. The, the message of it was, how could we not be debating this issue more forcefully when we're about to launch a war? We stand passively mute in the United States Senate today, paralyzed by our own uncertainty. Do you recall that speech? I do recall that speech very, very well. And I thought it was a great moment in Senator Byrd's career that he stood up and spoke so clearly and so forcefully on the mistake that was about to be made. And I thought it was one of his proudest moments in the United States Senate in a long and distinguished career, maybe his proudest moment. It was an amazing performance, uh, the entire uh, effort by Byrd to oppose the war. It may have been his last hurrah uh, in terms of his Senate service, but it was one of his best. Uh, I tell the story that I go to a, a church in Chicago called St. Pat's, and uh, after a Sunday Mass during the course of this debate, um, I was back and kneeling down in my pew, as good Catholic boys were taught, and an old fellow came by, and in a stage voice that could be heard halfway through the church, comes over and says, Senator Durbin? And I said, yes. And he said, stick with Bob Bird." <laughs> <laughs> so Bird's speeches were making it through. People yeah. were hearing them and understanding that this man was making this principled stand. Was there ever in the back of your mind uh, a bit of doubt about your skepticism? Never. Not an ounce. I, I thought this was one of the greatest mistakes we've ever made. I had top military leaders come to me privately. I mean, very top, uniform political leaders, and tell me they thought it was the greatest mistake in American military history. Why didn't they speak out? Well, you don't speak out. If you are, if you are in the chain of command... Uh, that's, that's just not done. I was always hopeful that more people would come to their senses and see how clearly this was a mistake, how, how this was not connected to the attack on the United States on 9-11. And just never happened. I was, I, I tell you, I attended a meeting with about 20 senators organized by Senator Byrd um, of people who were leaning against voting for the resolution. And I remember that meeting very distinctly. And I think there were about 20 us, uh, of us in the meeting. And frankly, I was surprised at how many people were in the meeting. I <laughs> really 20, was. One-fifth of the Senate. I was, I was you know, for, for again, Senator Inouye, who's one of the great war heroes of American history, 
uh, was in that room. John Kerry, um, with a very distinguished military record, was in that room. Senator Byrd laid out in a very thoughtful, impassioned way what a profound mistake he thought was about to be made and that it would have implications, negative implications for our country for years and possibly decades to come. And what did those 20 senators say? What was it like? I, I, it was very somber, very somber. People knew that this was a mistake. People knew that we're in that room, uh, knew that the war fever was running so high that America would pay a terrible price for this mistake. It was a time when walking through O'Hare, which I do every week, twice a week, you know, became confrontational. People would just come up right in my face, you know, almost all white men come up right in my face and tell me, you know, you're you're not taking these threats to America seriously. You've forgotten 9-11. Is that the it, way they said it? No, of course okay. not. <laughs> <laughs> it... Um, it was a rough period of time. There were Did it get to were, the point where you needed security in the airport no, or no? No. What would you say to those those guys who were confronting you there? Well, I'd, I'd try to keep my answer short and keep moving. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. At what point did you realize that you were very much in the minority here? 
Well, it, it was pretty obvious. I mean, there were earlier votes uh, on Levin on um, an amendment I offered uh, requiring an imminent threat uh, as opposed to a continuing threat, trying to put some immediacy into the. And I, I, I think I had 30 votes on yeah. my, my yeah. amendment. And so I could tell, you know, we were not in, on the winning side. It, it was going to be a minority vote. What's that like? Um, on being the on one hand, island. Yeah, being on an island, basically, where you can see crystal clearly that the case hasn't been made strong enough, but this epic foreign policy decision is going to happen without you. Is, is Well, there, there's more to it. Uh, at that point, opinion polls were in favor yeah, of yeah. action against Iraq, and I was in cycle. This was literally a month or two, month or five weeks before the election. Your opponent called you an appeaser. Yes. I mean, and, and so it, it, it wasn't a free vote, uh, you know, where a senator cast it and said five years from now I'll be able to explain it. It was imminent. It, 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 was, it was going to be brought up in, in the election campaign. But, you know, there reaches a point where it is a matter of conscience as to whether or not this is the right thing to do. There was opposition. More than half of the Democrats in the House, nearly a quarter of the Senate. But still, the president's victory was overwhelming. The tough message he wanted sent to the United Nations Security Council, to U.S. allies, and to Saddam Hussein. 77 to 23 in the Senate, 296 to 133 in the House. This vote took place late at night. And after the vote, for some reason, I stayed on the floor. There was no reason to do it. The vote was over and we were finished. I stuck around and there were two of my colleagues there, Paul Wellstone and Kent Conrad. I remember talking to both of them. And I went up to Wellstone, who was up for re-election at the time, too. And I said to him, Paul, I hope this doesn't cost you the election. And he said, it's all right if it does. This is who I am. This is what the people of Minnesota knew when they elected me. Uh, and um, I'm, I feel right with my vote. Conrad, too, from another conservative uh, state that uh, elected uh, George W. Bush uh, had voted against the war as well. And I thought to myself, as hard as this vote might have been for me, it was harder for both of them. Uh, and um, I just I felt good about the vote and good that I was satisfied in my own mind it was the right thing. That vote in the U.S. Congress gave the president legal authority to use force against Iraq. But the second piece of the puzzle for the Bush administration was to convince the world that an attack was justified. And leading the charge on that front was then-Secretary of State Colin Powell, who gave a now infamous speech at the United Nations. Making the case for war, Secretary Powell shows the world what he calls undeniable proof. For a lot of people, that presentation made them second-guess their opposition to the war. Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Here's a esteemed general, former general at that point. He's laying out a very compelling case to the United Nations. He's presenting what looked like concrete evidence, vials, aerial shots. Uh, they began to doubt whether they were right in their conviction that this was a bad idea. Did, I, I, didn't, I didn't doubt it at all. I thought the mistake was his and those who advised him for making that speech. I thought it was misleading. You know, he's said since that he felt he was misled in terms of information given to him. And I can remember the talk about moving of vehicles and whether or not they were launch vehicles and that sort of thing. Here you see both truck and rail car mounted mobile factories. I watched that carefully because I do have a real respect for him. 
We know that Iraq has at least seven of these mobile biological agent factories. Uh, and I, I wondered, did I do the right thing here? And, of course, he, he was giving uh, his statement based on information that turned out to be false. American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. The massive military operation to topple Saddam Hussein is now underway. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance. We can tell you that several areas in Iraq have been hit. Baghdad tonight, under heavy bombardment, on the day the war started. The start of a day, the start of the, the campaign called Shock and Awe, the original... Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. The United States and our allies have prevailed. Attacks against coalition forces in Iraq have grown more forceful, better organized, and broader based. They have forced the Bush administration to change its military strategy. There are already signs the insurgents are stepping up their attacks. A suicide bomber attacked a crowd of people, killing 30. Insurgents in Iraq grow even bolder. A murderous strike on the same target two days in a row. 40 dead today in Baghdad. The worst violence in weeks. I am confident in our plan for victory. I am confident in the will of the Iraqi people. There are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and there haven't been for a long time. A new report by the chief U.S. weapons inspector finds that Iraq got rid of its weapons of mass destruction shortly after the first Gulf War. The U.S. once claimed to have broken the back of the insurgency. That now seems long ago. The situation in Iraq with armed militarized factions fighting for their own political agendas can now be characterized as civil war. When you pull out before the job is done, that's cut and run, as far as I'm concerned. And that's cut and run as far as most Americans are concerned. Today, I can report that as promised, the rest of our troops in Iraq will come home by the end of the year. After nearly nine years, America's war in Iraq will be over. Extremist Sunni insurgents have declared an Islamic state in the country's northwest, and local Sunni tribes have also risen up against the Shiite-dominated government. That no vote was the most important vote I ever cast. It, um, I look back on it now with 4,844 American lives lost, tens of thousands coming home disabled and injured, trillions of dollars wasted, Iraq still in turmoil and say to myself, I did the right thing. And I, I feel that it was the right vote. Did you feel that way at the time? Though? I did. You did. And do you feel valid? I mean, you must feel validated or just, uh, I, justified I, by history. Maybe that's I, not the right way to put it. I, I, I would not use those words because um, you know, what a price we paid uh, to prove that this was a mistake. You, uh, in reading the old in the clips from the, that era, I mean, it did give me a little bit of sympathy for folks that did vote for it because of all the misinformation. Like it was, there was almost no one really questioning WMD. So like when, you know, Hillary Clinton or Biden have made statements about their regrets, I sort of can feel some sympathy because of just sort of that tide. I'm wondering how you feel about Clinton or Biden and sort of what, what they've had to go through since then because they've taken it on the chart. And Harry Reid. Harry Reid. I don't know of any Democratic senator who voted for the war in Iraq, 
who has said since, I did the right thing. They either don't say anything because of, you know, their feelings or, uh, they openly admit it was a mistake. Uh, and I get it. I mean, I understand because there was plenty of evidence coming at us and a steady drumbeat of support for this war. Uh, I understand how they voted the other way. Uh, I'm just glad I didn't. So what was the difference between you and them? I can't tell you. You know, this is so personal. This is not, this is not just a calculation, a mathematical equation. It's very emotional. And, um, it, it really, as I said, will keep you up at night if you're a conscientious member of the Senate, no matter how you end up voting. Is there anything positive that comes from this history? Um, maybe next time that we have a circumstance in which we're rushing to war, uh, the fact that history looks kindly upon you and not so much upon Harry Reid, um, as he would admit, does, do you think that maybe educates a future generation of lawmakers? I doubt it. You doubt it? Yeah. Absolutely, I doubt it. If an administration, again, pounds the drums for war and the media reacted as they did without serious thought, with just a visceral emotional response rather than thinking critically and seriously and responsibly, I don't think what happened in Iraq will unfortunately matter very much. Um, I wish I could say to you something else. I wish you could say, <laughs> oh, yeah, people will certainly learn from that. Some will, not enough. If the President of the United States calls up the Secretary of Defense and launches through the chain of command uh, a, an attack order, it will be carried out. That That is the fact of the matter. People ought to think very, very carefully about who they make President of the United States commander-in-chief of all American forces. If the President of the United States wants to take this nation to war, he can take this nation to war. And stopping that is incredibly difficult. Do you think that's the same today? That if a president wants to go to war and there's enough public yearning for it, it's going to happen? Absolutely. How are you going to stop him? was former Senator Kent Conrad and current Senator Dick Durbin. Candidate Confessional is produced and edited by Zach Young, who also wrote our theme music. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and spread the word. Tell everyone else to subscribe as well. Next week, I'm joined by Riel Hunter, the former mistress of presidential candidate John Edwards. It's an interesting one. Really, you're not going to want to miss it. Tune in then. <laughs>